This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about another terrific podcast called Historically Thinking. It's hosted by Al Zambone, a historian, and every week Al talks to historians about how they do their work and about their books and about history in general. This is a wonderful podcast, and it's one of our favorites at the New Books Network, and I really encourage you to subscribe to Historically Thinking. You can go to historicallythinking.org and learn all about it. It's on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there. And we'd like to give you a little taste of Historically Thinking, so we're going to republish some of Al's terrific episodes, such as the one that follows. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. For nearly 3,000 years, the question of what it means to be Greek has been one of perennial interest, and incredibly enough, not only to the Greeks. How a collection of small cities and kingdoms around the northeastern Mediterranean laid down precepts for science, art, politics, law, and philosophy is one of the great historical stories. Their influence would eventually reach far beyond the shores of the Mediterranean and for long after what is typically thought of as the zenith of their civilization, and not simply through the continuation of ideas that Greeks originally put in motion. For throughout their history, the Greeks have not only excelled in exporting ideas, but exporting goods through trade exporting faith through missionary endeavor, and exporting themselves, most recently in a 20th century diaspora that took them to every continent other than Antarctica. Roderick Baton surveys these Hellenic millennia in his magisterial The Greeks, A Global History. He is the Emeritus Correse Professor of Modern Greek and Byzantine History, Language and Literature at King's College London, a fellow with the British Academy, and one of the foremost living authorities on modern Greek literature. Roderick Baton, welcome to Historically Thinking. Uh, thank you, and it's, uh, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Well, this is uh, a large book. Uh, as I've discovered, this is a book that you've been thinking about since you first went to Greece as a teenager. That's um, true. 
And so uh, it is, as I often say, it's one of these books that's a very large apple. And we have to pick our way sort of to eat how we are going to chew our way around this apple. Um, one of the things that uh, struck me very forcibly when I read the book is, is movement. Um, that there are the invasions and diasporas and just the this, this sense of a, a, a sort of the Brownian motion of a dust cloud which is the history of Greek, uh, not just the, the ethnicity, but also the, the language. And so I think I want to focus on, as we talk on, on moments of movement, of which there are many. But let's begin with the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, because as I thought about it, um, the Iliad is, to be sure, uh, set in the 10th year of a war, which doesn't seem to end, uh, and the ships are up on the beach, but it's all about the Iliad is about the culmination or the sort of or near the culmination of an invasion. Uh, and the Odyssey is all about movement. <laughs> it's, it's about the return. It's one of many stories of returns. <clears throat> so how, but before we talk about that and what they became for, um, for Greek culture, where are they in the development of the Greek language? Is it true that this is, the beginning of the Greek language, so far as we know it. Well, I mean, let me first of all pick up on what you said about movement, because I think you're absolutely right. The story of the Greeks is about people in motion, in movement, and one of the things I felt I had to do in trying to grasp the whole story of Greek civilization, Greek history, Greek culture, is you know pick out what are the common themes that link up the different centuries and millennia. Mm -hmm. um, and you've already highlighted, uh, very helpfully actually, two of those. One is movement. The Greeks are always, almost always uh, getting on ships. They're crossing the sea. Um, the exception is Alexander the Great, who conquers a large part of the world by land. We might come to that. That's it. But even he, he's certainly covering distance in a big way. This is a people in motion. It's not about staying put. It's not about uh, fixed positions or identities or defending something and trying to maintain that. You know, in a way, it's a also it's a microcosm of history because isn't probably all human history actually about movement, movement through time, movement through space. But the Greeks did have done and are still doing. An awful lot of that. Yeah. And the other is, as you say, language, the role of language as a connecting thread. It really, I mean, for me, that was a, a fundamental decision in writing this book that I wasn't going to try to conceptualize and essentialize a Greek identity or a Greek nation or a Greek people from the start, but rather I was going to follow the proven evidence we have for a language that's been in use and been recorded in use over a longer period than almost any other language in the world. Be and, and so your definition of what does it mean to be Greek? Well, it's a, a, a Greek, a Hellene, someone who speaks Greek. That's where I'm starting from. It's not a 
it's not a universally accepted starting point. And uh, I'm expected to have some discussions with Greek friends and uh, <laughs> people in Greece who may take out, certainly have traditionally taken other views. But uh, what I think is not controversial is that the Greek language is fundamental to this Greek identity, which is of very great uh, longevity. Uh, to me, I mean, who... <laughs> To me, for whom, in some ways, and I know this is probably true of you, medieval Greece is as interesting, if not more interesting, than classical Greece. There, there, I said it out loud. And yet, um, what does it mean to be ethnically Greek in the Middle Ages? Um, you have to. It requires a great deal of. Um, it requires a great deal of paint to cover over the the disjunctions of ethnicity. But they do speak. All these people that are coming from everywhere in Eastern Europe and the Mediterranean ending up in this curious peninsula, um, they all end up speaking Greek, which is amazing. They do, and there is a continuous thread of generation after generation passing on this language from one to the other, but also because it's preserved in writing. Yes. The words that were written down decades and centuries and even millennia ago have been preserved. And some of the very oldest of these have only been rediscovered in the last uh, just over a century. And until the 1950s, we weren't able to read them. We didn't even know that they were Greek. It was the decipherment of the Linear B syllabic script of the Aegean Bronze Age, um, the decipherment in 1952 enabled scholars to extend the history of the Greek language and therefore of Greek speakers, Greek people, back um, half, a, half a millennium, almost a millennium further back than we had the means to do uh, and, before. And yet Homer did not write in Linear B. No, um, no, absolutely, uh, absolutely so what, not. When we look at Homer, we're looking at some, uh, and we have to just put Homer is, it's complex. We won't get into that whole story. Um, but uh, when Homer is putting together these 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 often repeated uh, stories that have been sung, um, Homer is in effect creating a new cultural template, a new linguistic template, which people will take forward. Is that is that overstepping? Uh, no, that's absolutely right. And in some way or other, which we don't quite understand how it happened, Homer or whoever the various people are who hide behind the possibly fictitious name of Homer, they're putting the putting together ancient material, already ancient material that's come down through word of mouth, using an entirely new technology that the Greeks have invented in or around the year 800 BCE. This is the technology of alphabetic writing. That's the key that really makes everything possible. But the stories that Homer tells go far back into what was already the distant past at that time. And we now know, thanks to archaeology and to the discovery of documents written in Linear B, but some elements, at least, of the fictional world that Homer preserves for us actually are based on the history that we can cross-check from these other sources. So Homer is uh, like a magpie taking little bits of history from as far back, you say, as, as far back as 1600 BC, and, yeah. and bits of history from the, the, the more recent, quote-unquote, like the last 200 years prior to 
the Homer, uh, and they all get together. But also the languages, there are different sort of uh, dialects are being combined together into something that's new and rich and, and, and different. There are exactly there are different strands of language in Homer, and Homer's it's maybe not so much a starting point as a kind of tipping point mm-hmm. between a much older world, which is preserved in, in elements of the language of the metrical form, which is very complicated. The actual poetic technique is very complicated, and a lot of half remembered, slightly jumbled up. Um, history of different periods superimposed upon one another. These things stretch very far back into the past, but Homer is also a watershed because for the first time, probably somewhere between about 800 BCE and 700 BCE, one or more people in the Greek-speaking world are actually going to enormous trouble to write down particular versions of these stories at monumental length. If you like, the Iliad and the Odyssey are like the pyramids of Egypt. They're almost the, you know, just as the pyramids are almost the oldest structures ever built, and they're some of the biggest. The oldest poems that we know are some of the longest, the biggest, the most ambitious. And modern poetry, modern literature, the whole really of world literature that we know today, you could say, begins with that watershed when the much older oral traditions find a place using the techniques, the technology, the alphabet, find a permanent place through the written word. So So in between this time that um, Homer uh, writes, sets down these ancient oral traditions and say the um, next great literary work of, of, of Greek, which is which would be Herodotus, as he said, um, there's an amazing cultural movement going on, which I think is um, is not sufficiently appreciated sometimes by modern people, and that's the this that the Greeks go everywhere in in several hundred years, mm-hmm. um, and they go throughout the littoral of the Black Sea, but also the littoral of the Western Mediterranean, and so soon by 400. Certainly, uh, by 400, you can't sail anywhere in that area without eventually running into a Greek-speaking city. Um, moreover, I think this is is key. Um, I think Paul Cartledge has pointed out the the, the tragedy of the fact that uh, we have such an, we have so much information about Athens, uh, uh, but we have very little knowledge of other places in the Greek world. Uh, and so, during this period the heart of the Greek world is not actually what we now call Greece, but Ionia, the coast of Asia Minor, uh, what's now the the coastline of of Turkey. Could you, and these two things are related, Ionia and this spread of the Greeks around the Mediterranean world. Could you, could you talk to them? They certainly are very, very much. And I mean, it's the result of a number of partly historical accidents and partly some rather cunning plans, uh, self-publicism, publicity by the Athenians over several hundred years that really established Athens as a preeminent uh, city. And um, I mean, my good friend Paul Cartledge, who is uh, you know, is a great, is the world expert on Sparta and uh, an honorary citizen of that uh, of that time today, um, does indeed lament the fact that you know the, the Spartans got left behind. They 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 trounced the Athenians on the battlefield, but um, you know words sort of last longer than the, you know, the pen is mightier than the sword. The Athenians did win out in the end, but 
the Greek world, the Greek mainland, the Greek islands were only part of uh, these. The mainland and the islands were only part of the Greek world in the classical period. And as you say, the almost the center of gravity of that world from the time of Homer about 800 to the time of Herodotus in the 400s had moved east. So that actually it was a series of very well-connected, very wealthy, prosperous cities all down the coast of what is now Turkey facing the Aegean. That was really where Greeks were to be were to be found, and they called themselves Ionians after the Ionian dialect. It was a form of Greek that they spoke, and these were the these Ionian Greeks speaking that dialect. These were the ones that first made an impact on other peoples of the of the neighbourhood, which is why in uh, the ancient languages such as Egyptian hieroglyphs and ancient Persian, Greeks were uh, were known as Ionians, and that remains very interestingly right through to today in in modern Turkish and in, in, in Arabic and in in uh, in Parsi and Iranian, Greeks are called Yunnan, which is a form of Ionian. They've always been called Ionians by the neighbouring peoples of the region. Yeah, that's where that's where they first ran into them. Well, sort of it is literally, um, and so these Ionians places like I think it's <clears throat> is it Miletus, which uh, has at least at least fifty different colonies, which are essentially cities that they establish uh, all the way out to modern Spain and all the way uh, in the opposite direction, all the way to Crimea and and beyond the Sea of Azov. That's right. I mean, first of all, the Greeks sort of fanned out across the Aegean. And then having done that um, during the so-called Dark Ages, you get these well-established cities then sending out, uh, they're often called colonies, but then they're rather different from modern or later kinds of colonies as well, sending out settlements, as I prefer to call them, people going in quite small numbers of ships, um, you know, sometimes dozens of them. And all over the uh, the whole of the Western, the Western Mediterranean, the Central Mediterranean, the Black Sea, the Sea of Marmara, you get. Um, I mean, one historian uh, makes the point that um, at the at the heyday of this process in the seventh century BCE, a new Greek city was being established somewhere, just about every year. <laughs> And at its height, there were about 1,500 separate Greek cities, uh, city-states, we often call them, because the other extraordinary thing about these settlements is that they're all independent from each other. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that makes it different from later colonization. As you said, the citizens of Miletus set up settlements all over you know, different coastlines, but Miletus never ruled these. They never became an empire for the home city. The Greek word metropolis was actually coined to refer to the city from which the settlers settled, went out to settle. But they never, they never really ruled them. The um, Greek city-states are always independent. The Greeks, among many other things that they invented, invented the word autonomy, autonomia, which means literally making laws for oneself. Yeah. And the Greek city-states politically fought to the death to preserve the right to make their own laws and to operate their systems that run their politics in the way they wanted to without um, being encroached on by, by any other. 
So this is a nice uh, place to um, underline something. Uh, get back to your original definition of Greek as um, Greeks are those who speak Greek. These people are not under political control from any central uh, organizing uh, polity. They're not even under control of the polity from which they came. Uh, yeah, they, don't, they don't share the same governments. Um, they don't. What do they share? They share, they share Greek, and somehow they see themselves as Greeks. Yes, and I mean, I think a very, a very interesting question is actually when and why do they begin to think of themselves as Greeks? Yeah. Yes, because in the wow. earliest days, the evidence suggests that actually they they didn't particularly, and even the name by which the Greeks predominantly called themselves in the ancient world, Hellenes, mm-hmm. comes to, into use relatively late. It's not used at all in that sense in Homer. Uh, Homer, in, Homer has different words to describe the, uh, the, the people who clearly speak Greek and who make war against, uh, against Troy. Um, dom- the dominant idea for all these Greek settlements is the city itself, what they call the polis. And every Greek seems to owe his primary allegiance to his polis. And that polis, it means a city, hence a city-state. And the affairs of the city-state in Greek are called politika. And that word, um, coined sometime around the 5th century BCE, is the direct origin of the politics that we all talk about and live by uh, today. But why... At what point do they start to self-reference as Greeks, and, and and why do you think this happens? Well, there are different there are different opinions about this. I mean, some say that the idea of a sort of pan-Hellenic identity is already beginning in the eighth century BCE; that it's present in Homer. <coughs> One thing that does unite the Greeks as well as their language is their religion. They believe a set of rather loose, disorganized set of stories about the gods who live on Mount Olympus. And Greeks pretty well everywhere, if they speak the Greek language, they carry out sacrifices to these gods. They build temples in more or less the same sort of way, and they they, they worship them. So that's something else that they have in common. And the only thing really that, uh, the only sort of civic or institutional force at all in the ancient world that cuts across the autonomy of each individual city-state are the religious centers. The most famous ones are at Olympia in the Peloponnese, at Delphi on the slopes of Mount Parnassus in central Greece, and the island of Delos in the Aegean. And each of these is a place of pilgrimage, a place where Greeks of all different rival city-states come together for ritual reasons, religious reasons, um, at regular uh, intervals. But apart from that, it really is just the um, just just the language that they uh, that they have in common. And it's not until they're attacked, it's not until they have to they have to come together to defend themselves that the Greeks really systematically begin to think of themselves in an overarching way as Hellenes, as a people that share other things beyond their language and their religion. And I would argue, anyway, that it's not until um, the two wars in 490 BCE and then in 480 to 479 BCE 
when Greece is threatened, well, it is invaded by the biggest empire the world had seen at that time, the empire of the Medes and Persians. We call it the Persian Empire for short. It's not until then that some of these Greek city-states, not even all of them, by any means a minority, come together to fight off this um, enormous, overwhelming threat. And against all the odds, they succeed. And I would argue that it's actually only in the aftermath of that uh, astonishing and unexpected victory that all the Greeks, the ones that fought against the Persians, but also slightly shamefacedly, maybe all the, the majority who didn't fight against the Persians, they all think, gosh, we've really got something here. We won. What is it that we, ha- we could really be proud of? And they say, right, okay, this is it. We are Hellenes. And with the name Hellenes, something else that they suddenly discover really matters to them is a word, another Greek word, eleutheria or eleutheria in modern Greek, liberty. And these two ideas of being Greek, Hellene, and liberty are fused together in the crucible of the Persian Wars, and they're never really truly separable after that. Hmm. Let's uh, jump forward over a lot of, of, of history uh, to a moment in which the Greeks exploded outward uh, no less and in a no less improbable event than their defense against the mightiest empire that the world has ever seen, um, Alexander the Great, uh, and uh, tutored by Aristotle, read in a, a half, read, uh, bred in a half barbarian kingdom um, up to the north, uh, unites the Greeks uh, under a iron rod, and then decides that he will take revenge, supposedly for the for the Persian invasion by knocking over the Persian Empire or something like that. That's right. He does. He does. does. Alexander, the king of the Macedonians, takes the war to the Persians some two and a bit centuries after those, two and a half centuries after those, that initial invasion. And he does actually conquer the entire Persian Empire. And the result is, um, I mean, it's an incredible story, but what it is, I suppose, is a a thermonuclear explosion of Hellenism across the Near East and into Asia. I mean, I forget what historian I read long, long ago pointed out that Iskander is a name in Malaysia, you know, a common name. So there's Hellenism makes its way to the places where Hellenes never go. Absolutely. I mean, he's, Alexander is, I mean, even today, is remembered in Iran and Pakistan and northern India, Afghanistan. Um, and uh, on his campaigns, he founded dozens of cities that were called after, he named, he wasn't modest, he called them after, after himself, Alexandria. Um, Kandahar in Afghanistan was called Alexandria in Arachosia, for example. Um, and there, there were lots of Alexandrias. The most famous one, of course, is Alexandria in Egypt, that is still called in Arabic Iskenderun. It's the Arabic form of the same, uh, the same name. Um, so, yes, it is, if you like, it's thermonuclear. It, uh, you know, Greek culture. Greek, the Greek language goes nuclear with the conquests of, Alexa- of Alexander. And there's kind of inbuilt irony here because um, the Macedonians of that time, I mean, they were a Greek-speaking people. They're part of the wider Hellenic world. But in the generation before Alexander, and indeed even during his lifetime, the, uh, the Greeks of the city-states like Athens and Sparta 
really look down their noses at those, as you said, semi-barbarous Macedonians. Um, I mean, good heavens, they didn't even put water in their wine. They drank it neat. And they did uh, other actually rather more shocking things. Yeah. Um, uh, so they, they, you know, they were kind of, you know, they were sort of half Greek, half barbarian. But those were the ones who, it was the father of Alexander the Great, Philip II of Macedonia, who really made a point of turning his kingdom into a thoroughly Greek-speaking, Greek-mannered, Greek-living uh, kind of uh, kind of place, and. Because um, Macedonia was much bigger, and it, under Philip, it became much more powerful than any of the small independent Greek city-states, it was a relatively easy matter for Philip simply to swallow them all up. And then Alexander just um, really kind of gathered them all under his, uh, under his cloak and swept them all into, uh, into Asia, and they got as far as Amritsar and um, you know, the River Indus in India and Pakistan. It was an extraordinary achievement, but it resulted, and it resulted right. in Greek, Greek becoming the common language and very quickly the prestige language of millions and millions of people living throughout those areas who up till that time, and indeed for long after, spoke many other languages as well. But Greek, the Greek language, and Greek building styles, Greek ways of laying out cities and architecture, these became the prestige, the standard models that everyone was trying to follow all over that world. So this is the, the creation or the, 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 the adapt, adaptation of Greek and uh, of a previous form of Greek into Koine Greek? Is that is that? That's right. Yes, um, Koine just means common. It's a kind of shared Greek, and um, this was the kind of Greek that Macedonians. We don't really know in any. We don't know exactly what what form of Greek they spoke among themselves. But when the when the when they wrote when they wrote things down for official purposes, and the Greek that they ex- exported to all these conquered lands was a kind of simplified everyday form of the prestige dialect of Athens, and this was the one that's common Greek. It became it was known as Koine. That was the language of commerce, and after a while, it became the language of of education as well. Right throughout this uh, broad area. It's, it's important to point out that it wasn't invented by Paul of Tarsus or by the uh, the writers of the four Gospels. They are it, they are writing in the common tongue. It absolutely was not invented by them, but it's thanks to them that we have some of the best evidence we have for what that ordinary everyday Greek really read like and sounded like, because when the first Christians, the first Christian missionaries, Paul of Tarsus, set out to convert people beyond the bounds of Judea to the teachings of Jesus Christ, the natural medium for doing that was the common language that everybody knew, namely Greek. But Paul, he had, he would, uh, he had a modest education, we suspect, himself. Um, uh, but, you know, he used, he used the language that everybody around him was using in its most everyday, unsophisticated form, because unlike actually most Greek writers at most periods, who were very self-conscious about what they were writing and how they wrote and how it sounded and how it related to the works of the past, Paul didn't care about any of that. Paul had a message of good news, the Evangelion, Evangelion, the gospel. He had a story to tell. He had to get that through to spread the 
the the word of the new religion, Christianity, and the Greek that he used is very homely for the time. Um, it's much closer to today's Greek uh, than the language of um, first century BCE Athens is, and still less the uh, the really quite difficult language of uh, of Homer. Let me ask you a, a, a couple of questions about that. Um, which is, this is asking questions about Greek to uh, to me or to um, an audience, almost all of which will not uh, speak or read Greek. Is a little bit like trying to explain uh, red to someone who's colorblind, but um, I remember a Byzantine uh, historian uh, teacher of mine saying that Socrates could probably read the Daily Athenian newspaper. Is that is that was that was that that sticks in my head? Is that more or less true? I won't say who it was, um, but it, but has Greek changed that? It's altered over time, but has it changed a little less than say Old English to Modern English? It has. Okay, <clears throat> let's see. With, <clears throat> let's think about that. Socrates would have had no trouble at all in reading a newspaper in the 19th century, okay. or some, <clears throat> or some indeed in the 20th century. <clears throat> the language of newspapers today has got a bit more more colloquial, closer to spoken Greek. Um, uh, he would have a he would have a certain he would he would have a certain amount of trouble uh, adjusting adjusting to it. But Saint Paul would really have a, have actually rather little little trouble. Would have had really quite little trouble, really. And I mean, literally the other way. I mean, a Greek today or some. I mean, you know, I'm fluent in Greek, but it's a long time since I seriously studied um, you know, studied the grammar of ancient Greek. Um, you know, the Gospels. It's it. You know, it's a bit like it is a bit like Chaucer. It's old fashioned. Um, it's got this sort of wonderful, you know, patina of age. But it's a language that you know, it's the same living language. Um, mm-hmm. Going further back of the trend, you know, Euripides, the most modern of the fifth century BCE tragedians, is the easiest to read. Aeschylus, only half, only a generation before, is getting really quite difficult, and Homer, everybody finds a struggle. But they already were struggling in Alexandria, a generation <laughs> after Alexander the Great. <laughs> so you know, the the change in language is it's sort of exponential in reverse. I think uh-huh. you could you know. Greek changed more between Homer and Euripides than between Euripides and St. Paul, and uh, even less again between St. Paul and us. So when we say that, um, so the, 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 so the Koine is in many ways, when you say the Koine strips things down uh, and simplifies things, what does that, what does that mean? Oh, I mean, it's it's a good question. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's almost like what I think linguists linguists call a creole, a sort of simplified lang- form of a foreign language that people speak among themselves, like Swahili, um, or you know, there's, there are called pidgin languages or creole languages. It's not quite that because it is a it is a native language, but it's what linguists call a register of a language. So. Koine is the simple. It's the everyday register. It's mm-hmm. um, it's what you're um, you know, it's what you hear in the street. Yeah. When people go into class, they're going to up their register a bit, and when they write their essay and they're going to be marked on it, they're going to up the register a bit more because they don't want to sort of be seen to sound too local or too everyday. And because Greek has such a long history, it's got a very deep depth of different registers. And in a way, 
these have accumulated through three thousand years, so that uh, today someone in write, someone writing in Greek has available to them the possibility of uh, sort of buying into or borrowing from types of Greek that have been written not just at different times in the past, but in different contexts of the past mm-hmm. as well. Um, <laughs> I really, I mean, it, it probably is a bit like the, what your analogy of, of being colorblind yep. and hearing about lots more and more that's, spectacular colors. That's very, it's very, it's very, I think it's very, very well explained, and it, it also I see now the the literary possibilities that you're that you, that you have been studying for a long time. Uh, well, there's there's certainly there. I mean, to take your your analogy of color, I mean the 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 palette or the you know the sort of digital the digital color range that the Greek writer can uh, potentially exploit is the most, the richest, the fullest, it's got the most pixels, if you like, yeah. probably any palette, any palette in the world. Yeah. Um, back to uh, to Paul and Quine in, in a way. So Christianity is expanding, well, in one important way, it's expanding along the lines of Jewish uh, immigration and diasporas throughout the Mediterranean. <laughs> but it's also using the power of Koine, the power of this uh, pan-Hellenic uh, Hellenic lingua franca, uh, to mix all my uh, languages together. Um, both of those things are necessary to Christianity and its missionary journeys. They absolutely are. And, I mean, in jumping from Alexander the Great to St. Paul, we've also missed out the stage that by the time... Paul is born in Tarsus and travels to uh, Judea, Palestine, to Jerusalem, uh, becomes a disciple and apostle of Jesus. By that time, the entire uh, what's left of Alexander's conquest had become part of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire... This is the point. I mean, we think of the Roman Empire as, you know, it comes from Rome and the the language is Latin. Um, And officially, that's true from Hadrian's Wall in Britain right to Baghdad on the Euphrates in today's Iraq. The official language is Latin. But throughout the entire eastern half of that empire, actually, most people speak and are educated not in Latin, but in Greek, simply because that's been the language of prestige and education ever since the time of Alexander, and the Romans are sensible enough not to try to change it. So if you live anywhere east of basically the Adriatic, take a line down the the Mediterranean, east of that line, most people speak Greek. That's the common language, the language of education, and that's exactly why uh, St. Paul um, uses Greek. And even when he writes to the, the, the Christians in Rome, he's still writing in Greek, not Latin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, as uh, Byzantine historians would always be uh, point out, eventually in the 300s, Constantine, uh, the first Christian emperor, decides that he will move the capital of Rome to the important part of the empire, which is to the east, which is to the, the straits, uh, to, to Constantinople, as he will call it. Well, it was Byzantium, and he will now make Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. So there's another movement. There's another. Um, there's another culture, and also a, sort of a. After, at long last, the Greeks finally conquer Rome in a way. Well, yes. I mean, in, in various senses, they did at different uh, at different times. I mean, the the Roman poet Horace famously said that um, you know that that Greece took captive 
the fierce people of Italy who had captured them, uh, meaning talking about the cultural penetration of Greek of Greek and Greeks into into Latin high culture. But you're right. Um, the subsequent history, Constantine. I don't think he actually set out to move the centre further east. It's simply he actually started out as as emperor, as co-emperor. He was crowned in the city of York in the north of England. But um, for complicated reasons, uh, he won a battle against a rival emperor um, on the shore of the Bosphorus, the narrow channel that divides Europe from Asia. And to commemorate that victory, he did something that uh, lots of uh, famous uh, lots of famous people before him had done in the Greek-speaking world and Roman world, which was to name a city after him. The nearest city wasn't probably as much as much of a city in those days, the nearest city to the site of his victory was the place you mentioned called Byzantium, on a perfect strategic site, surrounded by water on, four, on three sides, land on the fourth, and overlooking these strategic straits. It was called Byzantium. And Constantine decided to rename it Constantinople, the city of Constantine after himself, and he refashioned it as a new imperial city. And very shortly relatively shortly after that, Rome was conquered by barbarians, but Constantinople therefore survived as the capital of a Roman civilization that would survive for another thousand years after the fall of Rome in the West. And this is where it's helpful to um, focus on Greek language, because uh, Byzantines don't say, we're the Greek Christian empire. They don't say, we're the Byzantine empire. They say we're Romans, and we we have an emperor, and we have a senate, and this is the Roman Empire, and it's, it keeps on going, and yet they speak Greek. Absolutely. And, I mean, again, there's a kind of irony here, because Constantine himself was thoroughly Roman. Mm -hmm. He came from the Western Balkans, from somewhere in probably today's Serbia, um, but Latin, his, his language was Latin. Um, the elite all learned Greek in those days, but um, Bishop Eusebius, who wrote the Christian, who wrote his uh, somewhat uh, hagiographical biography, um, admitted that he was never very good in Greek. But it was after Constantine's time and after Constantinople became the sole, the capital city of what was left of the Roman Empire, the Latin West had fallen to barbarians. So in effect, the empire that still called itself and politically was Roman was very largely Greek-speaking. And within a couple of hundred years of Constantine's time, the, uh, the empire with its capital city in Constantinople became entirely Greek-speaking. Greek became its official and more or less its only written language, um, as it also became uniformly uh, Christian. This is the empire that, as I said, lasted for a, a thousand years after the uh, the fall of Rome at the beginning of the 5th century. Um, it was a Christian empire. It was Greek-speaking. And as you say, its people always called themselves Romans, not, uh, not Greeks. But... But nonetheless, they're defined by their Christian religion and their Greek language. The term we call them, modern historians, call them Byzantines. But nobody, nobody called them that in the Middle Ages. They called themselves Romans. And the real Romans in the West, the Western Europeans, who didn't like the idea of a rival Roman Empire somewhere else, uh, never called them Romans. They called them Greeks. 
which in a way made perfect sense because they spoke Greek after all. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The, and, they, and we have then this, this extraordinary process of constituting and reconstituting and meshing and remeshing a cultural identity uh, of, from many, many different weaves. Um, so these Greek Christians in Constantinople, uh, well, for example, Julius Caesar traced his ancestry back to Venus via Aeneas, um, and Anchises and, and Venus and Aeneas, and then the, the Julii all trace their ancestry back to Troy. So the Ro- aristocratic Romans, uh, back at the end of the Republic, uh, as we know from Virgil, they trace their ancestry back to the Trojans. But some, but now suddenly in 500, not only are they Christians, they're looking back to the Achaeans in the Iliad as their sort of at least cultural and, and sort of uh, intellectual or warrior forebears. It's quite extraordinary. Well, yes. And I mean, they're probably more than the Achaeans, actually. They're probably looking back to Homo because they're so proud of their, of their language and all the different yeah. things that have been written, uh, been written in it. And um, I mean, it's a, it's a topic that, you know, is caused enormous sort of ructions and uh, discussions and arguments, both politically and among academics in you know the last couple of centuries. You know, were the Byzantines Greeks? Were they Romans? What you know, what were they? Um, but it doesn't seem to have troubled the Byzantines that, at all. Um, it was, I think, so it was self-evident to them. They were the direct political inheritors of a political system that went back through the Roman em- through the Roman emperors and. Just as, as you say, I mean, the the um, Julius Caesar was descended from a goddess um, in the time of imperial Rome before they became Christian. The emperors were worshipped as gods in their lifetime, and they became deified and received sacrifices after death. And it wasn't perhaps as big a shift as all that. Constantine, when he was baptized as a Christian on his deathbed, had to forego the deification after death that all his predecessors had had. But what he bequeathed to his successors was the idea that the emperor, the chosen emperor in Constantinople, had been chosen by God and was legitimately constituted by the divine power to rule over the inhabited earth, which was the, as they saw it, was their empire. So there is a there is a succession from pagan emperors to Christian emperors, and the uh, after two hundred years, the official title in Greek of the emperors became actually it wasn't the Roman title emperor anymore. It was the old Greek word for king that had been used by Alexander the Great and his successors Basilius, and he was called the uh, the uh, emperor in Christ or the Christ-imitating emperor, uh, the uh, Basilius. And that, that term uh, remained in use for, uh, for hundreds of years after that. 
Um, let's fast forward again to an invasion that um, Westerners have completely forgotten, and if they remember it, they regard it as of no importance, and that Greeks have never forgiven, uh, which is the uh, Venetian and Crusader sack of Constantinople in 1204, which is a, a very far-reaching consequences uh, for that. Could you briefly describe that? Uh, well, I, I certainly can. I mean, on the 800th anniversary of it in uh, 2004, I think the then Pope John Pope John Paul II uh, made an official apology on behalf of the Vatican for what had uh, what had happened. Actually, the Pope of the time, Innocent III, uh, was was horrified too. Uh, the he, idea. He did some of this, this- Finest excommunications stemmed from it. He did, that's right. The idea of the Crusades, um, a somewhat controversial idea in today's world um, in any case, but the idea of the Crusades was to unite Christendom, to unite all all Christians um, in a holy war against Muslims. And um, like it or not, I mean, that's what the Crusades were. Uh, where about. But in 1204, for very complicated reasons, the Crusaders who had set out by sea, they set out by sea, um, and in order to get to the Holy Land, they needed the uh, fellow Christians, the, Vene- the people of Venice, who were very rich and had a lot of ships. The Venetians were great traders. Um, and the Venetians weren't so much bothered about reconquering the Holy Land, but uh, they did want value for money. So if they were going to use their ships to get the Crusaders to their goal, they had to be paid. The Crusaders didn't have the money. What are they going to do? The upshot was they made a detour to the richest city in the world at the time, which was Constantinople. And uh, very unwisely, a young exiled prince of Byzantium of Constantinople had promised the Crusaders, if you'll if you'll uphold my rights to my throne back in Constantinople, my treasury will, is overflowing. I'll pay you all you need. It didn't work out. The Byzantines in people in, in Constantinople didn't want the prince, and they killed him. And uh, well, actually, even before they killed him, he refused to pay. So the Crusaders and the Venetians got um, pretty annoyed. And... Uh, the upshot of, uh, cut a long story short, they sent the ships into the narrow waterway, the Golden Horn. They used siege engines piled on top of ships in order to, to um, get their, uh, their fighters over the top of these impregnable walls that had stood for almost a thousand years. And they trashed the world's richest and also one of the most holiest cities in uh, April 1204. And lots of treasures, art treasures from ancient Greece and also holy relics of Christianity were looted and then dispersed throughout Western Europe. Uh, some of the most priceless treasures ended up in uh, back in Venice, most famously the four horsemen that then stood for 800 years on the portico above the entrance to St. Mark's Basilica in uh, in Venice. It was... Uh, it was um, it was an inglorious day in a possibly inglorious history of the crusading movement, um, but it also marked the effective end of the uh, thousand-year empire, Christian empire of Constantinople. Because it politically, it breaks the empire into pieces which are never fully reconstituted, even when the Latin king is, or the crusader king is kicked out of Constantinople <coughs> by the Paleologians. Um, and uh, the rest of it well, basically, it's a political 
it's the first, it's one of the final turns of the knife in the uh, in the empire. Um, it is. I mean, the Byzantine Empire survives as, in effect, not much more than one among many competing city-states in a fragmented um, Eastern Mediterranean world that goes on for several hundreds of years after that. And in the final, but what it also does is it spreads, as you said, the art. It spreads, but it spreads manuscripts and books. And it spreads people start to move around as well, um, and it begin to take sort of the the cultural gospel of Greece and, and Greekness into the Western Mediterranean once again. Yes, I mean, that that process really reaches its apex, um, not with 1204 when they were looting art treasures, but in 1453, which was the final coup de grace when um, Constantinople was sacked for the second time, this time by the Ottoman Turks under the youthful Mehmed the Conqueror, Mehmed II, um, so-called Fatih in Turkish, the the Conqueror. Um, And that was the time, because up until that time, Constantinople and the monasteries of the region had been the repository of ancient Greek learning. And both before and after that final conquest, a large swathe of the elite, the educated people of the remaining rump Byzantine Empire fled to the West, to Christian lands, and particularly to Italy. They, They carried with them some of the treasures of their monasteries and their libraries, um, and these fueled the artistic and intellectual movement that was already gathering momentum in Western Europe that we know as the Renaissance. And in that way, Greek learning was rediscovered by the West, and it really uh, it was a sort of catalyst that enabled that huge resurgence of humanism and exploration, the, the foundation, if you like, of modern Western civilization really began during the 15th century uh, with that reconnection brought by the refugees from Constantinople fleeing west, fleeing the Ottoman Turks. But you make, an, in, your, in, in your book, you make a very strong case for not neglecting the importance of the 18th century in this uh, in the spread of Greek thought. Could you explain why the 18th century should also be remembered as an important efflorescence of, of, of Greek thought and, and, and Greek? Well, it is. I mean, the, the 15th century is the, is the peak, really, of the movement we call the Renaissance, but that was followed three centuries later by another intellectual and artistic movement. Intellectually, we call it the Enlightenment. We associate it with humanism, with secularism, we, again, with the its reconnection with the with pagan antiquity, with the Greek city states, with the Roman Republic, um, but also that's the time, even more than before, when the arts and architecture of ancient Greece really come to the fore. And this is a time when all over <clears throat> Europe and also through European colonies all over the world, um, the civic architecture of ancient Greece and Rome are being reproduced. Um, in public monuments uh, everywhere. I mean, take the, um, you know, take downtown uh, Washington, D.C., all these, the, the famous monuments there, they're all neoclassical in uh, in style. What we call a Greek revival in 
architecture and the arts really takes over in the 18th century. And that, together with this reconnection with the secular ideas of ancient Greece, this really connects, this really brings ancient Greece to the forefront of public consciousness all over Europe, in Russia to some extent, and to a very large extent in newly independent, the newly independent United States of America. Uh, and so I suppose that um, there are good political reasons why the uh, Greek revolt and succeeds and the Greek uh, independence is declared in the 1820s. But this is sort of the cultural groundwork which makes that possible. I mean, there are lots of people in the United States, oddly enough, who are really keen on Greek independence. And it's not just because of American independence, or, but it's, there, is a, there is a sort of spiritual and cultural ideal um, which they wish to see preserved and to succeed. Yes, I mean, there's an idea that's very widely promulgated at this time in Europe and in America, that the foundations for contemporary Western civilization, whichever continent it's on, actually were laid not by the Romans, but before the Romans, by the Greeks, and particularly by Athenian democracy and the sort of uh, the apex of the arts and architecture of classical Athens in the 5th century BCE, that becomes the lodestone, the, uh, the, the, the focal point, the point from which everything else that modern Europeans and modern Americans want to make their own and to build on for their own uh, ambitions, their own concept of civilization. And the Greeks rising up against their Ottoman masters, Ottoman rulers in the 1820s, very, uh, they're very articulate, they're very intelligent, in, uh, you know, they're very political in, in plugging into this worldwide really movement, in order, and they're very successful in rousing sympathies for their own liberation struggle by linking it to the aspirations of two continents for their own future civilization, and this links to the Greek Hellenic past. Yes. Um, when uh, Greek independence succeeds and they gain their, um, they gain political independence from the Ottoman Empire, um, it's only by projecting backward that we see that Athens is the natural capital. Uh, it must have seemed to them, this is a point, I, I think my figures are right, there are still at least 3 million Greeks living in what we now think of as the Turkish, along the Turkish coast in Ionia. Uh, I believe Constantinople in 18, even in 1914, I think was a majority Greek Christian or Christian city. Um, so there must have been there are plenty of Greeks who saw, well, this is just temporary. Eventually, we're going back, and Constantinople will be the natural capital of Greece. Well. Constantinople never really ceased to be the political and spiritual and moral centre of the Greek-speaking world. And that's true, just as true in the 19th century as it was in all the earlier ones. And the idea that the, you know, the, the Greek state was founded through that revolt in the 1820s, Athens became the, became the capital in the 1830s, it's worth thinking, thinking that, of course, Athens had never been a political capital ever before that. You know, it, it had been the, the city of the Athenian city-state. But the, it became the Duchy a, of Athens. I, 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 th- thanks to Bruce Clark, I, I'm, re- I'm read up on this. But that was, that was it. That was back when the, well, the Duke of Athens had his court in the Parthenon. 
That's right. There was a there was a Duchy of Athens in the in the in the fourteenth and fifteenth century. There was Athens a city state in ancient times. There was Athens as a simply a city under in the province of Achaea in Roman times, um, and it was really nowhere during the whole Byzantine. Uh, Byzantine millennium, Athens became a national capital for the first time uh, by a political decision made by the new, the new uh, soon-to-be king of Greece, King Otto of Bavaria, in 1833. It became officially the capital for the first time in 1834. But many Greeks already um, argued that you know that, as you say, that could only be temporary. The real capital is Constantinople, and. Until the nineteen twenties, the uh, there was a real political aspiration that the boundaries of the state would continue to expand in order to embrace the um, all the Greek-speaking people of the um, of the Balkans and uh, Anatolia. And this is the grand idea, Megali idea. That's right. Often, trans- I mean, I translate it as grand idea because there is something yeah. sort of. Um, Always unreal about it, but it's literally the great idea. Make Ali well, there in Greek. But we say that, but I, I was, you know, doing some reading up on this, and and in you know, with a, a few different decisions in 1914, 1915, and uh, uh, a lot of history looks it's so different that it's it's so counterfactual that it's not even worth speculating about because it, it's not impossible to see a Greek army entering into Constantinople um, in 1915, supported by what landed at Gallipoli. If the Greeks had been involved, the, the Dardanelles campaign might have gone very differently. Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I mean, I have written I have written about this uh, a little bit more than I had room for in this particular book. Um, but uh, in uh, indeed, in 1919 and 1920, there actually were small contingents of Greek troops stationed in Constantinople as part of a, a temporary occupying force of the Allies who had won Against the Ottoman Empire in the um, in the First World War, though I think there was quite a serious prospect in the 1914-1915 that uh, Greece eventually could make gains at the expense of the Ottoman Empire, and. I'm not sure that there was ever actually a Greek majority in Constantinople, but there certainly was a Greek majority in one of the other great cities of uh, uh, of the Ottoman Empire at that time, Smyrna, modern Izmir, um, and there was a <clears throat> there was a temporary occupation by the Greeks after the First World War, the temp- temporary occupation of Smyrna and its surrounding. Uh, surrounding hinterland, uh, historians since arguing from you know hindsight have almost universally said that you know that idea was uh, unrealizable that the uh, the Greeks could never have held an enclave in Anatolia against the resurgent Tur- Turkish nationalists. But at the time when Turkish nationalism was becoming formed as a movement and the foundations of modern Turkey were being established, that was not yet a given. And I, I agree with you that, um, that you know counterfactuals are actually worth worth thinking about. Um, we you know it wasn't until 1922 and the destruction of Smyrna after the uh, Turkish nationalist victory over the Greeks. It wasn't until then that the Greek grand idea of continuing to expand the state was definitively dead. And and not just dead, but you know doubly, triply, very, very dead. As dead as a as a Norwegian blue parrot. Um, it was, yeah, it was buried. It was buried. It was uh, pushing up the daisies. Uh, because, the I mean, far from a reconstituted Byzantine empire surrounding the Aegean Sea, we get one of the great 
forgotten catastrophes of the 20th century, which is uh, the deportation from Greece of Muslims and of Christians from from Turkey. Uh, we've got a war which God knows how many. Well, I believe I mean all. It's one of the many wars between 1918 and 1922 uh, across Eastern Europe, which kills many people as the entire the previous four years of war have killed. Um, it's this is a catastrophe of a, 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 an immense catastrophe. No, you're absolutely right. And I mean, that four-year continuation of the First World War um, was very quickly forgotten after it. And now you mention it, I'm rather struck that, you know, during the four years of the centenary of the First World War, in all the media in many countries, you know, we were constantly reminded of anniversaries, of centenaries. But... um, but nothing, no, nothing of that. One Think, book you know, out about it that I that I know of. One, just one book. But yeah, uh, I mean, we're, we're not. The, no one's celebrating or, or marking. Should not celebrate by marking the Treaty of Sefla. You know, this is which mm. which sort of ends this the Greek Turkish War. Well, of course it did. Well, of course it didn't end it. It was supposed. It, I mean, right, right. it was it was supposed to end it, but it didn't. And then right. it was the Treaty of Lausanne in um, yeah. 1923, which finally did end it um, on very uh, on crushing terms for the for the Greeks. With as you say, this compulsory exchange of our populations, which it was the big one of the world's biggest um, experiments in what we now call ethnic cleansing. And it was really tried out by statesmen as a kind of template for other to be followed by uh, by others. It's got a terrible name now, but it was one of the biggest movements of its kind. And it's also hugely to the credit of the Greek state emerging from the most humiliating defeat of it, of Greek history, that actually the small Greek state overwhelmed by a number of refugees who were approximately a third of the total citizens of the state before that time, it did actually manage to cope and assimilate, find ho- homes and housing and jobs for these refugees. Um, it was done with a large amount of uh, very important international help and international co- co- coordination, but it was the Greek state that that managed to do that. And it, but it is it um, it so transforms our understanding of Greece and and Greekness. This sort of the ending of the ending of Ionia, Ionian Greece after. I can't even do the math. Twenty four hundred years, <laughs> something, like, something like that. That's right. Um, and I mean, as you said, you know, in at, at certain points in 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 antiquity, Ionia was really the heartland of the Greek speaking world. Um, for much of the Middle Ages, it was from about the um, well, from the Roman Empire right through to the Arab conquests of the seventh century, seventh and eighth century. Um, most of European uh, the European Greek-speaking provinces had actually been lost to Slav, Slavs and other tribes pushing down from, uh, pushing into Greece and the Balkans from Eastern Europe. Um, and it would be some time before they were converted to Christianity and absorbed back into the Byzantine Empire. The heartland of the Byzantine Empire actually was Anatolia, what is today Turkey. Mm-hmm. You know, the identification between Greeks or the Greek-speaking world, and the political state of Greece as it is today, as it has become today, is is a result of history. It's not a given. No, it, it, it's interesting when you talk to Greek Americans who know something about their background. You'll find many of them are from the islands, 
I don't know if this is a rule or not. I don't know enough about Greek American immigration, but we should talk about immigration in the 20th century. But then you realize that many of them were refugees to the islands from Anatolia. And then I think they just kept coming. They just kept they just kept moving outward rather than rather than moving to the peninsula itself. Well, of course, this whole story brings us full circle to what you said right about the, right at the beginning about Greeks as a people always on the move. Yeah. And indeed, they, they have been very much in modern times, too, sometimes forced by circumstances, sometimes migrating in search for in search of, of, of better, better life chances, um, and not always in the same direction. Um, many of these islanders moved from rural, very poor conditions in the Aegean islands eastwards to the Anatolian city of Smyrna. Uh, Smyrna hadn't always been a Greek-majority population city. It became that during the 19th century with immigration, people moving east. And then these people were expelled westwards, and some um, – ended up on islands or in Athens or in other parts of Europe, and others kept going all the way across the Atlantic. And also, But also long before that, the, um, the peak actually of immigration to the United States of Greek speakers, both from Greece and from the Ottoman Empire, came in, I think, 1907. Okay. But it was the years either side of 1900 that saw the largest immigration of um, more than half a million, I think, Greek speakers at that time into the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you say, uh, for example, that Astoria in the New York borough of Queens is perhaps the biggest Greek village in the world. Yeah. College roommate, I've heard college, it called that. College roommate from Astoria. Um, that, that he, he, would, he would certainly have said that. Um, but as as we as we said at the beginning, I said the introduction. They're everywhere. Um, they would probably be living in our Antarctica if anyone was allowed to live there, just to maybe you know engage in trade or maybe sell items to the cruise ships or something like that. I wouldn't be at all, I wouldn't be at all surprised if indeed. I mean that's why I mean I did make a point of saying in is in a line somewhere in my book that you know there are thriving Greek communities to be found on every one of the Earth's inhabited continents. Yep. Um, so, so can we get back to the genesis of this? Is it? Did you really begin this in your head when you first went to Greece? I mean, what was the question that you had that eventually you had to answer with this book? Oh well, that takes me all that takes me back a very long way because I mean, I first went to Greece when I was in my teens, um, and I began learning ancient Greek at that time. Then I went on to be a professional career studying modern Greek language, literature, and history. I let my ancient Greek rather lapse. I've been mugging it up and uh, refreshing my memory in recent uh, in recent years. But it wasn't really until I retired from my academic job and my day job was to be a professor of uh, modern Greek and Byzantine history, language, and literature, which is already biting off really quite a large chunk of uh, history, language, and literature. It wasn't until I retired from my day job that um, I felt really liberated to roam over the, uh, the, the whole landscape that had begun with those early experiences of traveling to Greece, experiencing Greece as something sort of modern, contemporary, very exciting, but also simultaneously very ancient. And I've always been fascinated by that link, which exists through the Greek language. I could never have, obviously, as a teenager, it wouldn't have occurred to me to have formulated it as a question to which this book might have been the answer. But, I mean, we always write history in hindsight. So if you like, you could say, yes, this book is the answer to the question I could have asked, or maybe should have asked, back in my teens. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously that was an important journey for you. It put a lot of gasoline in your tank. Um, would do you recall the sort of emotion um, that you felt in the presence of that past? I mean, that must that must have been that must be, you must still have a little trace of that in your memory. Oh, I do. I mean, that first um, that that first that first visit to Greece when I was thirteen. Um, I mean, I that sticks very vividly in my uh, in my memory and. Um, I mean, naturally. I mean, as a, you know, as a young family, we were, we did the tourist things. We travelled to the islands. We looked at ancient sites. We went to Mycenae. We went to I went to the Acropolis of Athens. And in those days, you could you know you could scramble all over the the Parthenon. You could walk inside the ruins, which you haven't been allowed to do for decades now. Um, and we have found you know, we have family photographs of um, you know a teenage teenage me in shorts, sort of doing that. Um, that you know that has always stayed with me. That in a way, it's the, you could say that was the formative experience of my life. Yeah, yeah. Um, so why do the Greeks remain important after all this time? Um, what is it about Greek and the Greeks that remains important? Well. They're still there. They're still with us, <laughs> and I mean, not just in the obvious ways that you know, Greece is a is a country, is part of the European Union, it's part of modern you know the modern world that we go to. Um, it's an international language. Greek these Greek communities exist that I was talking about, but the study of ancient Greece exists on every continent. Uh, the legacy of ancient Greece, its uh, its arts, its sciences, its culture, is to be found everywhere. And I mean, the shortest answer of all to the question of what is what does Greece mean to us today? Um, let me try just try one word. Um, and it depends when people are listening to this podcast, but in January 2022, this will resonate. Try Omicron. Mm-hmm. And before Omicron, we had Delta. The variants of the COVID pandemic are called internationally by the letters of the Greek alphabet. Yeah, um, I think you conclude by uh, with a poem from Ahiva Panahi, who is a Kurdish-Iranian refugee in Greece, who writes in Greek and in Kurdish, which is, you know, I think that sort of so beautifully captures what you're teaching in the book, is that Greek is something that many peoples can be and have been grafted into over the period of 3,000 years. Well, thank you. Yes, I mean, thank you for mentioning that poem because I'm—I mean, I'm always very—I'm very—I'm very moved by it, and it seemed it does encapsulate. It seems to be in just a very few lines, not just the personal experience of that poet who first came to Greece as a refugee, uh, fleeing <clears throat> persecution in her native Iran, uh, and of course that's an experience multiplied by thousands, millions now of other refugees. Um, Fleeing uh, towards uh, towards Europe in the 21st century, but it also encapsulates a process that's been going on at least since the time of what I call becoming Greek in the wake of the conquest of Alexander. And because I think the key thing here is not that Alexander conquered all these places; it's that after he'd conquered all these places and after his empire really fell apart, the people who lived there wanted to, they chose to, they become Greek, they bought into the idea of being Greek, behaving like Greeks, building like Greeks, talking like Greeks, writing like Greeks. And 
in one way or another, although the essence, if you like, of that what you call Greekness, has changed immeasurably over all that time. Think of the change of religion, Christianity, for example, different political systems, different geographical areas. But in different ways and at different times, the Greek language, I come back to that, has become a magnet, It's drawn people into it in various ways and to various extents. People have continued to and are still becoming Greek, and many more who stop short of actually becoming literally Greek um, are touched by, involved in the legacy of some aspect of Greek civilization, whether it's spending a holiday on a beach in Mykonos or um, taking your test in the morning to check whether you've got the Omicron variant of COVID. (laughs) My guest today has been Roderick Baton. He's the author of The Greeks, a global history. Roderick Baton, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. I've really enjoyed it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.